the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I'm one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I am the last host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. And we're coming to you today with a topic that is a little more serious, I guess, than what our normal fare might be. We've had some fun over the last few months uh, with different types of things. Today, we wanted to talk about delusions of infestation. Uh, this is a phenomenon that's also known as delusory parasitosis, delusions of parasitosis, and occasionally as Ekbom syndrome. Uh, like I said, it's more serious than what we've covered in recent episodes. We're going to try and cover it in a very respectful tone, because this is something that affects quite a few folks, and it's a life-altering experience for pretty much everybody that's involved. And I'd say it's something that the three of us on the show deal with fairly frequently as extension entomologists. And I think we all have a passion for trying to open the gates up on the conversation around it and get more students prepared to deal with it in the future to feel like they can talk to these folks. Um, I know that I'm gearing up to teach a seminar uh, here at UK on this topic. We're going to have about 10 students in there that are interested in extension-based careers. Some of them are already in extension careers, and they want to feel more prepared for this. Uh, I know that you both have had recent experiences with delusory parasitosis, had some clients come in, right? Oh, yeah. I had three delusory... Well, I had three suspected delusory cases uh, last week, even. Um, and that wasn't even ones that had built up over Christmas break. Uh, they were just three that contacted me last week. Um, I have, I don't know if I've had any recent ones. Mine are mostly through email recently, but I would say this is a pretty difficult topic to discuss in public media, such as this, I guess, in podcasts, because it's usually something between like my office or me and that particular client. So. Right. And we're not going to talk about specific cases necessarily, or if we do, it won't be very specifically. Uh, we're not going to try and air any of that out or anything, but there are a lot of things I think that we have learned along the way um, in our careers as extension folks, things that we've been exposed to ideas and policies. Uh, Jody has some policies that I think are really important for people to hear uh, just because this is a part of the of, of entomology life, not just extension life. Every entomologist that I know has basically been confronted with this at some point in their career. Would you guys agree with that? Yes, yes. definitely. <laughs> it, it's not just extension. I mean, they find folks in many different walks of, of entomology, uh, not just veterinary and medical, but uh, taxonomists, everybody, it seems like, gets roped into this. And what about training? What has that looked like for you in the past? Zero training. I'd like, say, oh, go on. Like before you had this job, would you ever think that when someone wanted to talk about a bug, it's not like you take it for what it's worth. If they're like, there are bugs here and there are bugs like on my body and there are bugs in my car, you're like, okay, let me see this bug. You're 
like you're taking it for what they're saying. And so you never are prepared to have to deal with other things when there is no bug or it's an invisible thing. And I, I don't know if we even talked about the definitions. No, of- We're, we'll go through a lot of that. I think here at the start, before we get into some more nitty gritty, like how to, how to respond in these situations. Right. So if you're just talking like how frequent I would say it's, I mean, I've been with extension since 2016 and every year it's about four to 5% of my cases or clients, I would say are delusory parasitosis. Mm-hmm. So 30 to 35 per year. And it's not just like a one time, like I talk to them one time. It's, it's almost like a relationship where it's, there's m- many responses, many reaching out, um, things like that. So it's not. It's not an easy case. And I I guess for, to me, what's interesting is I came from horticultural entomology. I feel like when I, when I first had to deal with this, I was like, oh, it makes sense that nobody pulled me aside while I was working on ants on a golf course and was like, hey, by the way, this is how you talk to folks who are, are in this situation. But Jody, you come from the world of urban entomology, which is most often confronted with this. Mike is a diagnostician now, comes from taxonomy, but neither of you are, are saying, both of you are saying that you got basically zero preparation for when this happened to you. Maybe different from Jody. It's not that I got zero preparation. I got bad preparation. Ooh, okay. Um, and I, I mean, the preparation was zero. like I didn't, there was no formal, like, here's how you deal with a case like this when it comes in. Here's how you recognize it. I didn't get anything like that. But what I did see was other faculty, right, other faculty, I was a student then, but, but faculty that were getting these cases and being, in retrospect, really disrespectful of the client, like to, and to use language that I'm not sure how else to phrase it, but like they, they'd say things like these people are crazy. These people are like they dismissive. Um, and like, that's the example that was set for me. And like, I knew I didn't want to do that. Right. But I like, I also didn't have a good example of what to do. Right. When you're only exposed to bad parenting, you might not know that it's, it's bad. <laughs> well, no, I knew it was bad, but like, it was like, well, what do I do instead? Like, obviously don't dismiss them. And, and I mean, at this, it along with that, like when I was a student, um, when I was a master's student, a woman who I, in retrospect, and even then suspect had delusory parasitosis, somehow got my personal cell number and called me while I was driving to Lowe's one night and like wanted to talk to me about the mites infesting her body. And then it was like, I knew that delusory parasitosis existed. And it was the first time it, I had confronted it personally. I'm like, I am a student lady like i don't know how to help you right. um and she was in again in retrospect and having dealt with a few hundred of these clients like extremely aggressive um and so like way to be thrown into the deep end with no preparation um but again when i told like colleagues and in, in, in faculty like the next day they they laughed it off right like oh you oh you finally got it right it um, came around to you 
in like that's not maybe the best response. So I, I, I think I'm maybe not excited to do this episode today. I'm not exciting isn't the word that I would use. Um, but I think it's certainly necessary because like I don't want a, you know, a student maybe listening to this to go through that same experience that I did. Like they need a better grounding and maybe we can give them some of that. That's absolutely the hope for today. Uh, we're not trying to stir controversy or anything like that. I think our, our sincere hope here is that all of the entomologists, all of the students that are listening, that we provide you our experiences, our thoughts on this, and that you feel better prepared in the future. If you are in a situation where you're talking with somebody that believes their body or their home or their car or what have you is infested with insects, despite all evidence to the contrary. And so we kind of wanted to open up with a little bit of a discussion on the basics of delusory parasitosis. You'll hear different names for it, as I mentioned at the top. Delusions of infestation is one that's kind of coming, I think, to the forefront. Uh, I know, I think all three of us use delusory parasitosis. It's pretty much what we were brought up on, right? Yeah, yeah that, w- that was what I was taught and what is the default that I go to when I'm not thinking about it hard. Right. Like it's just right. what comes out. Um, Sometimes shortened to DP as well, yeah. uh, sort of as an internal little thing. Uh, I think delusions of infestation is maybe more evocative of the fact that it doesn't necessarily always take place on the body, that there are other things that get infested uh, and people have questions about. So you might see that ECBOMS is uh, the name for it in some literature. I haven't seen that take over the way that I had previously thought that it would. So just some different names that you might see. And it all boils down to a person that is dealing with a situation where they've become convinced that insects have infested them or objects around them. Uh, And it's not just insects. It can be other things. Mike, what you got? Oh, no, just another name. And I I can't come up with it. Um, But the one where Morgellons, um, the uh, Morgellons is a subset of this, right? Yeah, I can never tell if if it's a subset or like a sister group, because it often involves fibers, it's fibers, but it's the same out. kind of thing. Right. There's some of the same discussions that occur with it. Uh, it has a slightly different history because there was a point where I think they were talking about it in in Congress and like the National Institute of Health. I remember this, it being huge in the 90s. The CDC made a task force um, at some point in time to study it um, because there was like a biologist mother who her son was having I don't know I don't know if you want to call it episodes or some filaments under scabs or something and so she had kind of gathered a lot of people and tried to have it studied and so she got the attention of someone at the CDC and they ended up studying it for some time there is a, a paper about it and what they came to. I think they studied like 115 people and they came up with um, like, so it was funded research. So it's it's a little bit different in that it kind of, someone high up grabbed onto it and they did research about it. So it's not as stigmatized, I guess. Right. It's but, also a part of the Lyme community now. Uh, there's some people that are saying that Lyme produces keratin like fi- I, I haven't yes, waited into that literature and there's, yeah. it, it's well as I said <clears throat> it's a rabbit hole and so you go through it and you don't even know where you end up because then there's some there's still like separation whether it's um 
it's a delusion or if there is a definition based on some kind of illness or virus or something we don't know about yet. But at the time when it was studied, so it was like 2012, they found that it was not caused by infection of parasites and that it was due to itching and they kind of put it back to delusory parasitosis. And so there was no proven guidance. It kind of ended. And so if you were someone who wanted more information, it was kind of like a failed research, whereas it went the way of delusory. So I don't know if it's a subset or sister. It just, it, that it didn't work out. It didn't give the answers that people were looking for. Right. Okay. I, and I Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to ask because, you know, talking about the names of this, like, are we going to talk about Morgellons? Like specifically, no, but a lot of what we could talk about may apply to that. It may be a subset of this. If people are like familiar with Morgellons, maybe they're wondering if, we're going to get to that today. Um, Conversations about both do often seem lumped together, despite some of these differences that Jody highlighted. One of which I think is important to tackle up front. She's you use the word specifically delusion, uh, and we've said delusions of infestation and delusory parasitosis. I think it's important to kind of parse out some of these different verbs and nouns that get used. So when we talk about itching and insects and people, one word that uh, sort of forms the foundation of all this is formication. The feeling like something is crawling on you or touching you and itching on you comes from the idea of ants crawling on you. Uh, It's a real sensation. Like we all experience this fairly frequently. We as a species have, uh, I'd say, an addiction to problem solving, right? To pattern recognition. And so when your brain feels the hairs on your arm move or it feels a tickle of static electricity race across your skin, and it feels like the pitter-patter of insect feet, your brain is going to say, oh, an, an ant is on us, a louse is on us. We have a long history with ectoparasites, and so we often sort of jump to the conclusion that a bug is touching us. Jody, did your cockroaches ever fall into your shirt and you know give you this sensation? Well, I studied termites, and I used to count a lot of termites during my master's and PhD, and... If you're an entomologist doing those kind of things and you feel like something's crawling on you, there probably is something crawling on you. And I used to get like termites at the back of my neck. I don't even know how that happened. Aspirating. Who knows? (laughs) Right. But like, yeah, I'd be like this and I'd be like, oh, ah, dead termites. So and how many times when you talk about lice to school nurses, how often do you notice them all sort of sympathetically itching in the audience? Oh, so I talk about bed bugs. I talk about lice. I talk about ticks and everyone's always itching and they're always apologizing for it. And I'm like, no, that's just the effect I have on people. It's completely fine. This is somewhat controversial. Some of this stuff, it's like evolutionary psychology, this idea that we are predisposed to be sympathetic to seeing people itch and mm-hmm. that we, we jump to these conclusions that it has something to do with insects. Uh, when you get past that, there's also uh, there's a book by Jeff Lockwood, the the author that we talked about with the Rocky Mountain Spotted or the Rocky Mountain Locust. Uh, I always want to throw Spotted in there for some reason. Uh, his book, The Infested Mind: Why Humans Fear, Loathe, and Love Insects. He's got some chapters on some of these basic concepts. So once you get past formication, you can have hallucinations of insects touching you. Uh, this is most often associated with people going through alcohol withdrawals or who are on some sort of illicit drug or maybe are are taking multiple medications, they hallucinate, quote unquote, they are, they feel and imagine insects near them, on them, 
touching them, biting them, crawling all over the walls. Have you both read about this? I, I, mean, have I have not read, read that one. Yeah, I haven't read about it, but I mean the the name for one of it when you're on cocaine is coke bugs. Like, right. it's a known effect amongst drug users. Um, right. And I've certainly had a couple clients that, again, within the the first week of starting this job, uh, the first suspected delusory parasitosis case I got, I also think was probably a meth user based on other clues that I got during talking to that person. Like, and again, meth is one of these ones that can make you feel like crawling sensations, biting sensations, um, if you use it too much. But yeah, like it's, it's a known thing, especially among drug users. I'm, I'm glad you brought up, uh, the medication one too, because especially when I deal with older clients that are maybe on a whole cocktail of medications to keep their bodies functioning and them alive. Um, you know, they're on so many things and we don't know how a lot of these medications interact with each other. And I often suspect, especially again, with older clients that are on a bunch of meds that, that that could be it. And you mentioned like causing hallucinations, but it, and it could do that, but also just causing the itching sensation. Like right. it could be a, like these just make you itch. Um, and if they're not aware that that is a side effect of one of the drugs, maybe a known side effect or maybe a, an unknown interaction, uh, you know, I, that, that can definitely lead to lead to delusions later. Yes. Uh, the big one for that group that always surprises me is alcohol. I didn't realize, I always, when you hear about alcohol withdrawal, you hear about uh, DT, delirium tremens, the shakes that people will get uh, during the withdrawal period. Apparently, the, the hallucination of insects is more common even than that in severe cases of alcoholism. They feel things on them and they see things crawling on them. And that's why it's a hallucination because there isn't anything there. There's not a true external stimulus. It's something that you're kind of imagining in your brain. That's what makes it a hallucination. When you have some sort of stimulus and you misattribute it to insects, that's when we start to get into the illusions or delusions of parasitosis. So illusions is when it feels like they're real and there is something that is poking you, prodding you, or doing something to you. The most famous example that I read about in Lockwood's book and I've seen in other uh, DP literature, uh, like with Invisible Itches here at UK from Mike Potter, uh, is a, a research facility in the 1960s. It was a physics laboratory. And in the lab, there were 10 women working in the facility who reported prickling and tingling sensations while they worked. After an exterminator come in and treated with DDT, chlordane, phenethon, warfarin, and mothballs, uh, which should have probably killed anything that was alive in that facility. Um, not, the, the, the sensations were continually reported. One of the people that worked there said that she had a friend that worked at the telephone company who uh, talked about cable bugs, this mite that lived on cables and would come in and bite people. And so these folks eventually bought into this and thought that these mites were in this physics research facility. Long story short, it turns out that there was rock wool that was used as insulation in the facility and it was becoming dislodged and due to static electricity and a whole bunch of other things, it was getting on these women and it was causing this prickling, tingling sensation. And it felt like something was biting them. So there was a stimulus. It was attributed to an arthropod of some sort, but when the true culprit was revealed, 
They changed the rock wool out. They moved the women to a different area. They did something that broke the illusion and they believed it. They didn't continue to believe that there were mites living on or near them, which then brings us to delusions, which is the one that we most often deal with, which is where that they believe there is something on them. They have lots and lots of evidence that they bring forth that says, hey, this is what I have collected that shows what this arthropod is doing to me. You refute that evidence, but they so strongly believe in their conclusion that they have become, quote unquote, deluded, which is what you'd see in the medical literature, and they refuse to accept an alternative explanation. And so that is when you've entered delusory parasitosis or delusions of infestation territory, where you can't be convinced otherwise, which we've all experienced. It's really tough. Would you agree that it's it's hard once you reach that point to realize that the conversation is not going somewhere? What does that feel like to you two when that happens? I think it's gotten, I guess, easier to deal with over time. But I would say it took a good year to not feel something personal. And I know with new colleagues or people who haven't experienced anymore, it could be very awful watching someone who is obviously suffering to listen to their stories, to listen to them crying and to not be convinced. And so it's really hard to stick to what you're seeing, which is maybe not anything that you're trying to see and deal with the emotional toll. And I think it's hard when you're in the business of helping people and customer service and you can't do anything to help. So I think it it can be very, very traumatic on a personal level to to not be able to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think I I find it helpful <laughs> to disassociate a little bit. Um like I try to help them as best as I can, but again like Jody said, don't take it personally. Um, I think the hardest ones for me to deal with were two cases where like indicated that they were suicidal at that point. Like I need help. And if nobody can help me, I'm going to kill myself. And like, I tried to help them as best I can. And you know, in the end they didn't take that advice and then never contacted me again. I don't know what happened to them. Like, right. Lots of people might say that they're suicidal. Very few go through with it. So maybe they're still here. Maybe they found the help that they needed. But like, I'll, I don't know and I'll never know. And presumably I'll get more cases like that every now and again throughout my career. So I think those for me are the hardest to deal with because like somebody might not be here because I couldn't do anything, even though like in my head, I know there's nothing I could have done right. at that point. Um, so th- those I think are the toughest for me. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure where I saw it. It might have been Nancy Hinkle that was talking about it, um, or one of the other entomologists that is is bigger in like this field than we are that publishes on it more. Um, talking about how like there's this, I don't know, a treadmill or a path. Like some of these folks, like they start out, there is a physical stimulus there. There is something that is causing this, and I've seen this too. Like they get like a flea infestation, and you know it's fleas. They have they show you the fleas. Um, they're being bitten. There is something else in their environment that is causing these feelings. They get rid of it. And you think it would stop, but then the like the delusions have started to take root. And then 
Like there is a point where like six months or a year, if you can catch them before that and, and get them off the train, you can bring them back from the brink. But if they, if that continues and you like after a year, like it evolves from like a physical effect. And then even if you remove the physical stimulus, the delusions continue. Um, so it's, it's that it can be not just delusions, but a progression from like an actual thing to a, a delusional thing. Absolutely. I think that's actually a good sort of transition uh, point to talk about both the experiences that we've had with how this is presented to us. And then the experiences a, a delusory parasitosis client may have gone through before they've contacted us. So just to start with our sort of lived experiences, how it's presented to us, what are the, you've already mentioned one of them, Mike, this classic sort of plea of you're my last hope. I've heard, I've read those words many, many times in my career. Um, you're the only one who can help me. Uh, I've exhausted all other avenues. So there's often this desperation that comes off very quickly um, where they, they clearly have been through a lot. And they're suffering and they're, they're turning to you now. Like you, you are their next source of hope. Uh, what are some other classic things that come up in the conversation, in the email? What are other things that are brought to you at your office, uh, where you, your, your spider sense starts tingling a little bit that maybe this could end up being a delusory case? Sure. I, before I answer that, I do want to say, um, because of like the kind of transition from actual or something there to delusions i tend to and because a lot of what i'm seeing is through email or on the phone or like i don't see the or even through the mail like i don't see the client physically in front of me oftentimes it's a one-off where they send me something i send my reply and they don't reply back my definition of like what is lumped into this is maybe a little bit broader because it's going to capture some of those ones that are maybe at the beginning of like there's something real there bothering them. It's not a delusion yet. Right. But I can't tell that based on like what I get. Um, but things that I'll see that may start making me suspect that, that I'm dealing with a case like this, um, classic matchbox sign. It was called matchbox sign because historically people would bring in scabs and lint and other stuff in a matchbox. Now it's more like Ziploc bag sign. Um, and I've gotten, you know, two foot by two foot by two foot boxes sent through the mail that are filled to the brim with bags of stuff. And none of it is an insect. Um, bags of lint, of scabs, of skin, of bloody rags because people have like picked it themselves and put it in there. Uh, hair, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you would pull out of a, uh, a dryer, the lint out of a dryer or a vacuum cleaner, just bags of all this non-insect stuff. Um, and something I've talked to Matt Bertone down at NC State about, maybe you guys uh, have experienced this, sometimes there's a smell to it. And I don't know how to describe it except for it's the smell that you get in nursing homes. And I don't know what causes it. I suspect it may be some kind of cleaner. Um, but it's it's a really distinctive smell that if I can smell that emanating off the box, even before I open it, it's like, oh, I think I know what's going to be in here. Right. Jody, um, similar experiences? I would say that I I want to say that I'm 
more of the expert in this state just because I can deal with it um, the most and the I, I don't want to say the the fastest, but I know it's hard for other people. So I'm like, just send send them to me. I'll I'll take care of it. So I get I get photos through email. And then I also have things that can be dropped off usually to staff or volunteers. And we do have a drop box. Um, and it's usually something that's causing like discomfort or skin reactions. And I put those in quotes because that's that's how I refer to them. Um, but they are always multiple samples. You know, like sometimes people are like, hi, I didn't get a sample. Sorry, I don't have a picture. Sorry. Uh, when it comes to the DP cases, I find that there are ample samples but not anything that has any arthropods in them. Um, you know, multiple bags, as Mike said, Ziploc bags, bags in bags, tape in bags, envelopes, things stuck to tape, uh, full sticky boards. And um, I often make sure that the paperwork is filled out so I have all their information. And I try to do everything when it comes to potential um, delusory parasitosis cases in writing. I like to have everything lined out because I don't want to be accused or I don't want to feel like I didn't do the best job that I could do given those circumstances. But uh, their paperwork that comes to me with the sample is usually very long, detailed, I would say like a TMI story, like way too much information about history and things in their personal lives that have nothing to do with, you know, their sample. Um, what is hit, if I could interrupt? A history, a, oh, you mean like what kind of yeah. stuff? Like a history yeah, like of their what is the struggles? History? Okay. Um, they are going through some kind of event that is life-changing. Someone's either passed away, they are moving out of their house, they have been divorced. It's something very like one of those life-changing events that has a high stress to it. Um Someone, yeah, someone is, someone's passed away. There's, there's something traumatic going on in their life. And I feel like that is manifesting in these sensations and having uh, this issue. There's always something they're living in their car. They've, their dog died. It could be something that not necessarily, like it's, it's something very traumatic to them. Right. Um, And that story gets wrapped up in their sample uh, explanation, their their desperate uh, plea for answers and healing and all these boxes that I have. So my sample submission list has a bunch of boxes of where you're finding things, you know, kitchen, bathroom, laundry room, pantry, things like that. And then also like, how long have you been seeing them? Um, how many have you seen? And so if all the boxes are checked, and I think there's 10 boxes for where um, if it's too numerous to count and it's ongoing seasonal and it's usually like three to four years, I find is something that's always written in there. Um, it's kind of a red flag for delusory parasitosis clients. And I know that I have to not have any volunteers look at it and no master gardeners are going to look at it. It's going to be up to me. I take that. It's my issue. I mean, in a good case, um, you know, people will say, oh, it, you know, if it's an ant, it's like one box is checked, like it's in the kitchen. There's 10 to 20. And I've just noticed this a week ago. Um, when it comes to delusory cases, it's, it's going to be just a lot of information, a lot of red flags. It's going to be like a red alert. Like I need help now. This is very desperate in terms of an entomology sample. This is urgent to them. Right. I mean, a lot of times. There's not a really bug problem that's super urgent. These things 
have it take time. But for them, it's very urgent. What about uh, complicated life cycle type stuff where they they explain to you how this thing develops? They they know it A to Z, the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're usually floaty white things that change shape and morph into things. And they, they, they're flying. And like I've had them some start fires. They tie bows. They split into a million pieces and go into rainbows. Like not anything I've learned in entomology. But this is very real to them. Yeah, for sure. It, if I start seeing like life cycles that are just not possible, um, it eats the wood and it burrows into me. It's in my car and in my house and on the bus and they only follow me. Um, one that I see a lot is I'm the only person in my household that they go after. Um, you know, it's they're on me, but they're not on my husband. We, we sleep in the same bed. They're not on my child. Um, but yeah, the, the, the impossible life cycle, I suppose, is a good way to, to frame it is a really common thing that I see as well. That one point that you just made is also something that gets, I think, a little complicated within delusory cases where it is often an individual. Uh, they're often alone in their home. But if there are multiple people in the home, you can actually have a situation where the delusion ends up becoming shared which has some French names that I can't pronounce. Mike, maybe you are a little better at them. I can't remember what they're called, but I have seen that. Um, it's uh or something like that. Yeah. And I've, I've had cases like that where, you know, they, they'll start saying, Oh, these things bite me and my dog. It's like, well, your dog doesn't have fleas and there's nothing in these samples. Like they're projecting like normal dog scratching. Um, like on, what they're feeling onto their pets. I had, I had one where I'm fairly sure the mother had it and was projecting it onto her child. Um, that was a sad one because it never, it didn't get resolved. And like, I don't, you know, it's not fun. It's not, it's not a good thing. Um, but I've certainly seen cases where like, yeah, the, the, the first person gets the delusion and then they project it onto family members who may or may not take up that delusion as well. Um, but it, you know, maybe being forced upon them too. Right. I have encountered that where they clearly don't believe it, but they're playing along because they don't want to upset their mom or their dad or their brother or sister. But I do find when there's family members involved, which rarely there is, um, I can count on two hands how many times I've had an external family member involved. I think those are the, when it's not an external source that can be dealt with, if it's a real delusion, if I've got a family member who I can bring in and like convince them, like, look, there's nothing here. This is a delusion. You need to get them to a physician, not me. If I can get that family member to believe me, like it is going to be, those are the cases where I have the highest success in terms of like actually getting the person the help they need. Um, if you can get that family member, that really increases your chances of, uh, success. And even then, a lot of the times, even if I don't think the family member has DP, sometimes they won't believe me. They're like, well, no, my my spouse, my father, my whatever isn't crazy. Like, they don't have a delusion. It, there has to be something here. It's like, even though I'm not being bitten, there has to be something. So even even with a family member involved, sometimes it doesn't always go well. Absolutely agree with that. Uh, the last thing I would throw out is uh, very complicated control measures or or dangerous control measures you'll get 
I, I at least have had emails and handwritten notes talking about methods of application for getting alcohol on your skin, in your ears. Uh, I've, you, I've seen people put pesticides on Q-tips and, and apply those in their ears and on other parts of their body. Uh, Jody, I know you've had some experiences with this as well, sort of dangerous applications. Yeah. Yeah, the things that they'll put on their body, the things they'll wash their clothes in, their bed sheets with, the things that they'll take baths in, uh, whether it's pesticide, lotions, potions, essential oils, neem oil, permethrin, things that are definitely not labeled and to be applied those ways. But they're so desperate and they they want to kill whatever's there, um, like eating food grade diatomaceous earth and changing their complete diet so that, you know, whatever's inside them will, will die, you know, vinegar, borax, ammonia. Eating veterinary dewormer. Uh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I've had one where they bathed in gasoline, uh, which, you know, dangerous. It, yeah. Something in something I try to get across too is like, this is making it worse. All of these things are like dry Taking even just taking multiple showers a day, like you're stripping all of the oils off of your skin, you're drying your skin out. That is making these feelings much worse. If you stop doing these things, you'll get some relief. It presuming there is like an underlying cause and it isn't like a full blown delusion, right? Where there's illusions of feelings, right? I think we'll probably talk about more of that towards the end about when you admit that there's something going on. And trying to get to an answer there, um, one of the harder parts of this whole process. But we've talked about our experiences. I think it would be fair to try and look at it from the opposite side of the street and talk about what a sufferer in this situation is going through. So by the time they get to us, I would argue that they've probably seen multiple people. Jody, who are some folks that they've talked to before they've shown up in your inbox or at your office? Well, they've definitely hired a pest control company to spray their house to rid them of this issue. And in extension, we have clients that are, you know, pest management professionals. And I've been in a situation where I've actually received samples from both of the same case. And it's the only time I've ever said, like, shame on you. You are not doing this person any favors. Because I know you're using pesticides and they've come in and they have no bugs. So what are you spraying for? You know, Um, because it's not going to go away if they don't have any, you know, arthropods of any kind that do the biting or deliver those sensations that they're describing, then no amount of pesticides, any amount of treatment, all that money they're spending is not going to help. But it's something they've already Um, invested that time, money, material into. They've also sometimes seen a doctor or dermatologist. And when they go to those healthcare professionals and they say, I feel like I have bugs on my body, that gets them pretty much like no one's listening. And it's like, well, you have bugs. That's not anything I can help you with. So they get pushed toward an entomologist or someone in the business of bugs. Absolutely. I would agree with that. It seems like it's often this automatic rubber stamp of like, oh, well, I'm a doctor. This isn't my purview. Please leave and go elsewhere Um, and then come back with a response from them. And maybe we can help you from there. Yeah. Like medical doctors are up here and entomologists and anyone bug related are down here. 
And when they're like, well, that's not our problem. You have a bug problem. You need to go see a bug person. And even health departments or, you know, they'll say, oh, well, I know someone at the extension office that can help you. Um, because no one is willing to deal with it because it is a very uncomfortable topic. I've had clients that have been to the doctor and been prescribed ivermectin or uh, other topical anti-parasitics. And they say, like, I've had, I've tried two or three different things from the doctors and none of them work. And like the doctors never did a skin scrape to confirm that they had scabies or anything. Um, they just, they hear I have bugs and then prescribe an anti-parasitic and that further reinforces the illusion because the doctor said I, I have parasites. They prescribed me medicine for parasites. Like, why can't you find these parasites that are in my skin that the doctor says I have? Yeah, I think that's the tough one is when a doctor has unwittingly reinforced the delusion by prescribing something. And I I I don't want to clown on the medical community, right? They face a ton of problems and shortages and issues. And I know that a doctor or a nurse practitioner or whoever is seeing some of these folks, they're very they're they're under a high amount of pressure to clear a certain number of people in a day. And see so many clients and, and, you know, if you hear the word bugs, bites, this, that, and the other, oh, you need Benadryl, you need permethrin, you need this, and then bingo, bango, problem solved. But yeah, it doesn't help in these moments. And I, I feel like just some extra questions would get them beyond the initial diagnosis. And I've had it happen with doctors, with dermatologists, not to say that dermatologists aren't doctors, but uh, even a specialist that you would think would take that extra step perhaps. And, and and even when they do, I've had confusing ones where they come back and they say, oh, well, they did a biopsy and it said it was arthropods, which I never know what to do with that information. I never know how to respond to that because that seems like an impossibility. I don't know. Maybe you two have a different opinion on that. I've actually been down that rabbit hole before and I don't know when things come back. Okay. I think I did end up making a bunch of phone calls this one time, but it's when things come back, it is determined to be of an external stimulus. So like something that poked their skin or something like that, it could be a bite, it could be a sting, it could be something, but they don't have like the venom or DNA or anything like that to say that this was from an arthropod. It's just something that's external. Right. I think, you know, because that makes way more sense than being like, oh, we found bed bug bits in your bite. And and you also, you know, you don't know when you're this client is telling you something like this is their reality. This is what they feel like they've been told or what they read or what, you know, and if they're in so much stress under so much stress, like how can you remember exactly what has been said? So you're going to interpret it a certain way. Like, no, my doctor said it's a bug bite. It's from a bug. They know it. Um, for me, I often say, like, I I need to see a sample of the bug, of the arthropod. I cannot diagnose based on a feeling. Like, you feel this. And I can't, nobody can diagnose based on a skin reaction. Because even, even a medical doctor, because everyone has their own immune system and react differently, right? Some people don't react at all. So it's good to let them know that because yeah, it's not always going to be the same, you know, and it's right. Well, how we're do you not a monolith. We, we mm-hmm. don't, we don't all express symptoms the same way. And that, that is even true for bites and stings. 
Yeah. It, if I can go on about doctors a little bit more, um, <laughs> and, and I'm going to get on a soapbox here. Um, I've had a number of clients that don't have medical insurance and so can't see a dermatologist or a physician. Like they, they can't right. afford it. Right. Um, and so they go to the ER because that's the only doctor that they can get into and not have to pay anything because the ER will, will see everybody. Um, but they're obviously not an emergency because they're, they're feeling something on their skin. So they get booted out, rightfully so, of the emergency room because they're not an emergency. And I had one client that was like, I've been to the ER four times and they won't see me, but I can't afford to go see a doctor. Um, and I just wonder if, like it seems like in Europe they have less issues with this, and I wonder if we had socialized medicine where people could see a doctor, even though they're poor and can't afford like to see a physician under our current medical establishment. Like I just wonder if if more of this would get taken care of, or if there wasn't such a push on doctors under our capitalist system to bang out patients and get right. them out of the door, because the more patients you see, like the more money you make. Right. Um, and I've got a million dollars in debt from going to medical school and I need to pay that off. <laughs> um, like, I just wonder if the, if the system were different, uh, if maybe we like if doctors had a chance to have the time to handle this, if people could see the doctor like they need to, if we would see less of this, if, if, if less of it would come to us entomologists that aren't equipped to deal with it. I've wondered that, you know, if the system is set up to, to enhance some of this. I I know that we end up with this because we're free in most cases, right? A sample is a free submission. Visiting your local extension office is under the, the wings of your taxes, so you don't have to pay anything to get in the door. Uh, I do think that all absolutely factors in. And I think Jody laid it out really well. Like they, they've gone to a doctor. The doctor maybe referred them to a dermatologist. They've paid a pest control company, and now they're talking to you. And when they get done with you, they may start the cycle all over again. You used the word treadmill earlier, Mike. I think it's a very apt description. It just keeps on going for these people and they keep suffering because it just doesn't seem like any of us can pull the brake lever for them. Uh, we'll talk more about that towards the end, I think. I, I What I would like kind of this this part to be more about is how how to respond in this moment. Uh, we've all, we all had our first, we all had our first client that came in that it, this is, what the situation turned into. I had been in Omaha, Nebraska as an extension entomologist, I think for 10 days, maybe it was seven or 10 days. I'd been there for a week or a week and a half when I dealt with my first one. Mike, you made it sound like it happened within uh, about 20 business hours of walking in the door at Penn State. Jody, yeah. it was day one. It was day one. And yeah. it, it's tough. Um I don't think any of us would say that we walked out of grad school feeling like we knew what we were going to do in this moment. I remember the sinking feeling of not desperation that I had, but of like, oh, no, I, I'm i not ready for this. I'm not ready to to talk to somebody in this situation because so far everything has been at face value. There was a bug. I talked to them about the bug. Everybody was happy. And this one, it, that was not the way that it was going to go down. Uh, so I guess I'd like to talk about how how we have evolved, each of us, and where we kind of come from when we do this, and how we respond to these clients. Uh, I was hoping Jody 
could maybe talk us through that. Uh, you are, I don't want to put too fine a point on it. I would rank you one and then probably Mike number two and me number three at this point in terms of how often this happens. Being in the county office, I think you are confronted with this more often than us. So you have a real protocol. Yeah, and I've I've adjusted and changed. And, and I mean, it, it all comes to me. I don't want anyone else to, to deal with it um, because, because I feel like, yeah, because I have the protocol on it. Yeah, it's definitely starts with a, a place of respect. So I put myself in their shoes in terms of what they are experiencing, because from what they're telling me, it sounds hopeless. It sounds terrible. And I'll just say, like, that sounds terrible. And some, I mean, when you are desperate, you want to be heard. And so that's the first thing I do. I don't say, like, because they've already been dismissed. They've already felt like no one cares about them they probably already feel you know they feel crazy so I will just kind of say like yeah this this sounds this sounds terrible I I do have to if I know that something like this is coming I do have to prepare myself you know I can't do walk-ins like this because it's it's something that takes a lot of time there are things like I can diagnose something very quick when it comes to these cases it's going to be 45 minutes to an hour so um, I have to be ready and I have to make sure that I'm doing all the, um, what do you call it? Like my body language is matching mm-hmm. up with what I'm saying. And you know me, I'm very excitable. And, you know, these kind of things take a lot of concentration for me. Um, I do have to, this is like one of the times I, apologize, like I am sorry for them that they're experiencing this, that what they're going through this and it sounds terrible. So some empathy and sympathy, right? Yeah. You yeah. you recognize their emotions and then you say, Right. I I see that that's happening. Yeah. Like because this is their reality. Whether or not it's my reality, it's it's their reality, and I want to acknowledge that. And you know, I say who I am, what I do, and what my limitations are as an entomologist. So I am I am here to rule out to identify anything of arthropod origin, so insect spider. Um, that could be causing you this, you know, this suffering. And I want to help you move toward something where you can find answers to help you get better. So then they know that I I care and I'm trying. Um, but also as an entomologist, I'm not doing like internal parasites. I'm not looking at their blood. I'm not testing anything. I don't want them to take their clothes off. I don't want them to take their bra and give it to me. I don't, I don't want those kind of things. And so I do have strict boundaries with those things. Um, and so, you know, I build trust, but it's kind of like at an arm's length. And I make sure that like that it's not in my personal office, that we're out in the foyer where other people can see us. If this is an in-person um, communication and that I'm sitting at the same level as them, I'm not talking down to them. I have to really think about my tone of voice. Um, all of these things that I don't have to do with with other other people in other situations, because this is the only type of situation I've ever felt threatened and uh, like that slight or fight feeling. And so I need to really be aware of how I'm projecting myself because, because I, I do sometimes just want to run away or fight them. I was going to say, it sounds like I don't like that feeling. Well, it sounds like you're <laughs> trying to protect yourself, right? Uh, this is a situation that, that could go a couple of different directions. Uh, and it's good to be out in the open rather than somewhere private. That also helps. Uh, would you agree with defending you? Like people, other people heard what you said 
uh, if it was verbal or if you've written it down. I mean, that's obviously very different. But if you're out in the open where yeah. everybody can hear. Right. So there's usually a receptionist or someone up front. And if they're there and they see it getting out of hand, that they probably could, you know, call 911 if needed. I've not had to go that way. Um, but I'm also, you know, not opposed to if if I do feel threatened in some way, I'm like, I'll I'll ask the person to leave. Um, I mean, I'll be a little scared, but I'll, I have to do that. Um, um, most of the other stuff is email responses and um, I have it not drafted, but I have like the subject line is going to be the same, which is like sample at extension office dropped off on this date. So I can always find it. I always use the name of the person. I talk about like that. I have not seen any evidence of um, biting arthropods in their sample. And sometimes I'll send pictures of what I saw. If they don't believe me, I will say some things about like about the sample. Like, you know, I looked at your 52 bags of um, Ziploc bags of samples and I see, you know, plant material, fabric, small rock-like items, things that I would just call debris, but I don't see insects. And a lot of times I've been asked to keep the sample. They want to pick it up to show someone else. So I'll say like, I've kept your sample. I'll keep it in the refrigerator to the end of the week, you know, and I'm not a medical doctor. And then I kind of do the, you know, it sounds like you're suffering a lot. I hope you can get to the bottom of what's causing your discomfort, you know, sincerely Jody Green. So it's, it's not just dismissing them right away. And that I have this now as like a document that I've seen this person, I have their email address, because often it's not going to be the end. Sometimes like what Mike said, you'll never hear from them again. And other times, you know, they may, a great thing would be if they're like, thank you so much. Um, that's a relief. That would be like the best response ever. You know, it doesn't happen very often, you know, but. Um, I, I wanted to parse through a couple of things that you mentioned here because you talked about respect and we, we brought up the words empathy and sympathy. How do you, how do you walk that line and not end up enforcing the delusion or offering a false sense of hope? I know that. In my experience, a lot of entomologists, they'll cast about, they'll be like, well, I didn't find any of our normal biters, bed bugs, fleas, this, that, and the other. But, you know, there's this whole host of other things that could be going on. Maybe that's your answer. Uh, if that's the case, you know, talk to this person, see you bye. Uh, how do you, how do you walk that tightrope? Sure. Um, I think it's interesting that you, that you bring that up because um, I guess a lot of my cases anymore post 2020, um, I've seen a big shift towards email uh, samples um, across the board, but the same trend has occurred in my delusory parasitosis cases where I, about 70% of them are emails now. And I've got a stock email response that like, I'll change the beginning paragraph of, to reflect whatever they've sent me. Usually something like, you know, I, I've looked through your sample, there's no arthropods in it, or I found arthropods X, Y, Z. They don't bite people. You know, this one was a dark winged fungus net and then I'll have a paragraph about what they do. One was, uh, I don't know, a lady, uh, no, that's not a good example, but like, if it's not a, a non-biting insect, I'll say like, this is what it is. This is how we know it doesn't bite people. They don't have mouth parts as adults, you know, for something. And then the rest of the email is, is pretty stock. I lay out like, these are the types of biting pests that you find indoors, bed bugs, fleas, bird mites, and a little blurb about each one of them and how to recognize them and where you might find them. Um, like bed bugs are typically around the bed. You'll find excrement 
on the mattress, you'll find shed skins. This is how you look for them. This is what fleas do. And one thing um, that we didn't talk about, or maybe, maybe not at length with how do you recognize DP cases is a lot of people will say something like these bugs are invisible. They're too small to see. I can't catch a sample. Um, so one thing that I say with all of these, after outlining like the possible biting insects, because there's not that many that get indoors. Like you can see all of these. If you have these, you will find evidence of them. Um, and then after that, after I've laid out the things that could be biting them, but aren't in the sample, say something like, you know, if you rule these out by looking for them, you need to consider non-insect causes, um, such as environmental and medical causes. And I, I give some examples of each. Um, I had one client that had improperly installed ductwork that was blowing fiberglass insulation on them. Um, Ouch. Yeah, right? So, like, consider, like, here are some examples of environmental factors. Fiberglass insulation, paper shavings from, like, if you're doing a lot of... That was something in the 80s, I guess, with the tear-off side, the printers. Yeah. Paper mites. Pa yeah, paper mites. Um, static electricity, skin reactions to new soap and clothing detergent, moisturizer, and other products. Medical causes include things like dry skin and other dermatology issues, um, hormonal imbalance. So one thing I suspect happens sometimes, especially in older women, is menopause starts causing some of these feelings. Um, and so I, I list out some of the things that they need to consider that aren't insect causes and say, you know, you these are non-insect causes that can cause bite-like feelings like you're experiencing. They're beyond my ability to diagnose and treat like you really need to go see a physician if you know if, if you come to the conclusion that it might be something one of these options um so i guess that's with the emails that's how i deal with it um because it is it does help to have like a stock email drafted where i just change the specifics especially in the beginning and maybe at the end of the email um and it's taken me you know, six years of tinkering with this thing to get it to where it is now. Um, I've found that I like doing it like that because it does lay out like, these are the things that bite you, you can see them. If you roll those out, here's the other options. Like it makes it so you're not saying you person, you are crazy and you have a mental illness. It says there are causes behind this. Now, if it is a true delusion, if it's a delusion, it, you know, if there is a, a delusion where if they get on antipsychotic medications, it will help them with that. Even if it's not one of these things, one of these medical causes that is causing it, you know, or environmental causes, if I can get them to see a physician, maybe they can then get the medicine they need. Um, Cause I certainly can't provide it, but getting them off of me and onto the people that can help them um, is the, like the only option because I, like I can't prescribe antipsychotics. Um, so I guess that's how I've handled it, at least for those kind of cases. I, unlike Jody, I don't get walk-ins. Nobody comes up to my office. Right. Um, so it's either like I'm calling the client on the phone because they sent in a sample or sending them an email. Um, so I think that helps uh, deal with it, some of it. Although, kind of like Jody, um, if I get a client where I have to call them, because they've only provided like a phone number or something. Uh, I'll often deal with all of my other 
cases for the day first, because I know like this is going to be 45 minutes to an hour and it is going to be, it's going to be mentally draining. And like, I need to prepare myself for that. And so I'm going to, that'll be the last thing I do because after I'm done with this, it's going to wipe me out for the rest of the work day. And like, I need Mm -hmm. to deal with everything else first. Yeah. I know that feeling for sure. Uh, I think that that's all that's, that's the procedure, right? I mean, you, you empathize, you sympathize, you respect them. You don't, would you agree automatically assume it's a DP case? Even if I've got 10 alarm bells going off saying, oh my gosh, I think this could be delusory. It's best to not start from there. It's best to start from thinking, all right, I've got an open mind. You never know what what could be in these bags. Uh, Do you approach it similarly? Yeah, I believe that we owe it to the clients to look at them and rule any arthropods out. And I know if it's other people looking at them, you know, they may dismiss them because they don't have, I guess, the the way that I do it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is a, this is a delusory case. And I'm like, let me look at that. And then I'll see something. And I'm like, no, I'm going to take care of it. Like, I see a mite in here. And I'm going to ask more about this problem. Right. You know, and, you know, they keep chickens or something. Right. So, oh, I've got a, a, a pair. Yeah. And I've that's captured. amazing. <laughs> I love I I love those I actually love it that it's right. not a delusory case and that I can help and I've identified something and you know it's that's yeah. that's my job that's what I do right those are the cases where you're like you kind of look back and you're you're like oh my goodness it it felt so right like oh it turns out the kids playing with uh wild baby robins that are nesting on their window ledge every evening uh they keep turkeys yeah, I mean, we've all had sort of wild cases where you end up tracking down the real culprit and it's not delusory. It was just, it felt like it. So respecting them, listening to them, reading through everything, looking at everything, it's time consuming, it's draining, but it is the honorable, respectful, and I would argue ethical thing to do. Is that right, Mike? I mean, you wrote a paper on the ethics of this. <laughs> well, I didn't write the ethics part, but I was an author on the um, it's it's out. It should be out in American Entomologist sometime soon. Um, in the next couple issues, um, I wrote like from the entomologist perspective. But yeah, the 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 ethicist who was a co-author on the paper, um, you know, their whole argument is that for these people, this is real, and we need to recognize like they're trying to make sense of their world, and this is how they're doing it. Like especially when it isn't just an illusion of, uh, of, of bites. If it feels like, like there is a physical sensation there, like they don't know what's causing it. What bites, what produces bite like feelings? Well, obviously insects do like they're trying to make sense of the world through the lenses that they have based on the feelings that they're having. And like, you know, that is their reality. Now it may not be your reality because there may not be anything there, but you should you can't just dismiss people because they're trying to make sense of the world around them through this way. Um the idea of look like not assuming it's a, a delusory parasitosis case, I I agree with. Like I've had a couple cases where I assumed after seeing the sample that it was a DP case, and then after some back and forth with the client, like do find a biting arthropod that was not in the initial samples, was not part of the initial like what they told me and like you're glad after you figure it out like oh this is the thing that's causing the feelings if you can get rid of this that will stop these feelings 
um, you're glad you don't dismiss them out of hand at that point because like there was there was something there. Um, John, I think you've got a good example of that. Um, with oh, least- yeah, I had a client that she she was concerned for her son. I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but basically, this person was complaining of being bitten. There were competing stories that were involved that involved possible pubic lice. Uh, and then there were questions about insects coming out of taxidermied animals. And ultimately, it turned out that this person was being bitten by hackberry lace bugs. They were eating under a hackberry tree every day. The lace bugs were falling on them. And it just so happened in one of the samples that was provided very early on in the process in the tape, uh, which is also sort of a classic sign where they wrap tape around the arms or legs and pull insects and stuff off, there were these hackberry lace bugs that had gotten caught in the tape they are known to to poke people just like thrips and a few other sort of non-blood feeding things do when they land on our squishy skin they try to figure out what it is and so we had a happy conclusion the person stopped eating under the tree and the sensations went away it was a happy ending but all of the of the beginning of the conversation was just red flag after red flag of you know, all these assumptions and all of these delusory sort of hallmarks. So it was good to start from that place of respect and listen and do my due diligence. I do think that there's a caveat there and maybe Jody can talk a little bit about this because she's very famous for her no thank you list, but there, there does come a point where you have to protect yourself. I mean, you could be potentially being exposed to harmful or toxic substances bio contaminants, all kinds of things. And there also comes a point where you've been queried five, 10, 15 times by the same person. So Jody, do you have any advice to share with some of our listeners about how to protect yourself in this situation? Yeah. So we made a list about acceptable samples and unacceptable samples. And we've got, you know, due to biohazards and safety concerns we cannot accept or examine certain items and these have all come in before so no human skin blood or bodily fluids no clothes fabrics or textiles um i've had someone put their bra under their microscope yep um no food items i get a lot of lunch just a whole bunch of Food. Right. Um, yeah. No lint roller sheets, toilet and tissue paper. Okay. I hate cotton swabs, makeup remover things, toilet paper, all wadded up and wet. I will not look at those. Um, so that's, that's, those are my limitations, boundaries. Um, and then no liquids because I've had full foot soak vinegar water or whatnot. Like I, and you know, sometimes I get things, I'm like fully gloved. I've got masks, goggles on because I don't know what people are sending me in it. It doesn't feel good to do that. When people come into the office and they want, you know, their sample looked at and it's just kind of in a cup or something, our receptionist is like, here's a container. You need to go and put it in a container or a bag and go outside and do that. And if yep. they refuse to do it, then I refuse to look at it because if they're like, I don't want to look, I don't want to touch that. I'm like, why, why would I want to touch that? I think that that's fair stuff to say, right? I mean, we do get to say, you can't bring us your blood, your feces, your other bodily material. Like we have rules. And if you follow those rules, we will help you out. But there are some truly disgusting things that can come in through the mail 
uh, Mike is nodding, so I'm guessing he's got a story or two. Oh, just, I mean, I eat, my lab is also my office, and the, the space where I look at samples is the space where I eat my lunch. And I don't want to be looking at poop on my right. desk. Um, I, I have had, I haven't had, like, I've, I've had blood samples come in. Um, I haven't had poop or, or other quite as bad, like biohazard stuff. Um, other ones that I've, I've said it were like unsolicited genital pics. Don't send those to me. Right. Uh, and there's a reason for that is because I got one. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and that was shocking when I opened my email. Uh, please don't send me that stuff. I don't need to see your private bits. Um, we're not doctors like that. <laughs> right. Like there's reasons that we have these rules in places because we don't want to be sick or catch something or have a biohazard presented to us in a way that we can't handle it or, or just see things that we don't need to be seeing. Yeah. I, I mean, I've chuckled maybe a couple of times, but I don't think any of this is flip or, or sort of asinine on our part. I think it's absolutely necessary for our safety. I mean, gloves, goggles, a separate area to examine things like this. Um, having things in containers, these are, these are just the rules and the rules are in place as always, usually for a reason, regulations are written in blood or whatever the phrase is. Like we, we put these things down in place for, for the safety of, of ourselves and people that work with us. So if you're going to submit samples, please be respectful of that and know that that respect will be returned. Uh, anything that we missed on that front? I think Mike touched on it a little bit about um, antipsychotic meds, and we we talked about it before we started recording. But it's been shown that these medications will help. There is a successful treatment for people that are dealing with um, delusory parasitosis. However, it needs to be prescribed by someone in the medical profession or psychiatrist correct right so i guess the challenge is trying to get our clients to understand these aren't insect related or arthropod related to go to medical profession to get the help that we know can be successful but when it goes wrong you know i've had people call and say Remember me? You told me I was crazy and that I was on drugs. I'm like, I did not say that. Or maybe they said you said that to them. And I said, he would never say that to you. That's not a true statement. Um, but, you know, there's, there's that challenge of if you need treatment or you are going to be successful in treating this problem, you need to admit that these are antipsychotics. So is that a problem? It's a barrier for treatment, right? If this is, is stigmatized that you're psychotic and that you need to take antipsychotic medicine to be treated. Right. And it's one of those things where I think we've all had the conversation with different administrators, perhaps at different in different ways of you can't say what you might need to say in some of these scenarios. I would say that by and large, I have been told, at least my experience is, you cannot say something that is diagnostic in that way. You cannot say, I've gone through this, and based on everything that I see here, 
I believe you have delusions of infestation. You have delusory parasitosis because you're making a medical or psychological diagnosis as an entomologist. You can only stick to your lane. You can only say, based on what I'm seeing here, I can't tell you that you have biting pests. I can't tell you that you have anything that we know of that feeds on people. And that's where the conversation stops. And it, it's, it's terrible because it does need that extra step It all. I wish I had a psychiatry person that would sit with me during these kinds of things and be like, and now I'm ready to talk because there, there is a, a, a step that's not being taken. It feels like, and I, I would say, yeah, you can't, you can't suggest it. Like you can't really even implant it in their mind. I, I, maybe you two have different opinions. No, I agree with you, but those are, I mean, that's, that's the limitation, right? We know. I mean, I don't even go as far as like the menopause thing that might go through because still to me, that's like more medical than what I'm, I don't want them to come in and talk to me about menopause. I don't know anything about well, probably should soon, but I don't know <laughs> anything about that. I want to say like in terms of trying to tell someone else, you know, I do know that there are the the medical or the medicines, the side effects for medicines. And there are a number of illnesses that um, come with symptoms of rashes or, or itchiness. And so that's all deferred to in the medical profession that way. Um, and I've had a bad experience when, you know, I had 50 or so pill bottles come in with different debris in it and they still had the labels on them. So I went through and looked up every single medication and saw like what the side effects were. And I think I did bring that up to the client because they were repeat clients and they just totally ignored me, never heard from them again. But then a pest control company came in and brought like 30 samples. And I was like, I know whose house this is from and shame on you. But, you know, so like I've come out of my lane before and I've been very um, like those were not good experiences. So now I'm very strict on on sticking to my boundaries because I. It was just so bad. Right. I think there's a difference between diagnosing the person like saying, oh, you're a woman over 40, menopause is causing this versus there are a number of medical issues that can cause bite-like feelings like you're experiencing, including menopause and hormonal imbalance and these other things. I think suggesting it as one of a slew of possible issues that they should see somebody else about, I think mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. At least I do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because like, if I can convince them there's no bugs, but here are some options, you need to see a physician because of these options. Mm -hmm. Right. I think, I think that when that you present it as, as this tableau, right? Listen, you brought me all this. I found none of these things that would cause what we would normally associate with these problems. There's a whole host. There's a whole world of things that make our skin go crazy. Hard water, medications, mm -hmm. uh, everything, everything that Mike listed before, as long as it's this like laundry list of things, for them mm -hmm. to you almost just like pierce pierce the delusion like yeah, wiggle your wiggle your way in there cuz the question though was like well what else could it be and right. like, well it could be all let me stuff. tell you yeah cuz there i mean it really can be and until you like even explain and if they're willing to open their mind to other suggestions of what it can be 
you know, you're, they're never going to be on the road to like fully recovering from that. Right. And, well, and I think that's an important thing too. Like, like, like you both just said, if you can get them to accept, like pierce the delusion, like it could be another thing. It could be a non-insect issue. If you can even get them to accept that it's not these invisible bugs that they think, like, I think that's a huge step um, for them. I just to Jody's point about the medicine, I did have a client that uh, similarly sent me medic medicine bottles with the labels on it. And I, I looked up one and it like itching was a side effect. And I brought that up in my email, like, this is something you need to talk to your doctor about because like it says right here, itching is a side effect. That might be what's causing these feelings. Um, mm-hmm. I never heard back from them, so I don't know how that went, but mm-hmm. I, right. I, I, and I don't think that that is stepping out of your lane. Cause that's like, they gave you that information. It's publicly available that that is a side effect. I'm not making a diagnosis, but based on the things that you have presented me with, like, this could be like, you need to talk to somebody else about this. Cause that could, that could be it. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike, that like listing all of these things out and saying, these are alternative ideas rather than. You know, you got this, you've, you've got diabetes, you've got, uh, menopause, you've got AIDS. Uh, that's on the list of things that can mm. end up with these sensations. Uh, or though, I think the worst thing that you can do is say you have delusory parasitosis. I mean, that, that sets you up for, for trouble, not just legally, but like perhaps even physically. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we teach students or teach other people about it, and I love like the one from American Entomologist by Nancy Hinkle, the delusory parasitosis. It's easy to read and lots of lists. You know, I'll refer to that or send that to different educators or people around the state. And it's always like, do not send this to your client. Like this is for you to read, for you to understand what is happening. You don't, you don't like, Hey, this is what you got and send it to them. Right. So, and maybe you two will disagree with me and say that this is the wrong thing to do. (laughs) I I have had three that I can think of and maybe less than half a dozen at least. Um, Count them on one hand. Uh, Cases where family members have been involved and I will tell them like, you know, based on what I'm seeing, it could be these other things. Like I'll give them the laundry list that I give other clients, but then I'll also say like, there's also this thing called delusory parasitosis that you need to consider and see a physician about. Like it may be a delusion. And if it, if that's the case, if it's not one of these other things that I've said, if it is a delusion, if it is a delusion, antipsychotics can help and can get them past this, but you need to help them get to that point. You need to help them get to the physician. Um, like I'm not, Again, it's not saying to that family member, like, they have this, but right. but I will include it in the list of things that are possibilities because they're more open to hearing. Yes. I think contextually, yeah, that's a that's a whole other can of worms, right? Like, mm-hmm. when you're not saying it directly to the person who's suffering, you're saying it to somebody who is closer to them and could help them and maybe even couch that in better terms. And also, I mean, you still included it in a list of things. You didn't say, by the way, your uncle has delusory parasitosis it's a declarative statement i think that that changes the game a bit to mix my metaphors further i we have talked a lot about delusory parasitosis today we've talked a lot about our experiences what the literature says the experiences of these folks are have we missed anything uh jody or mike that you think would would help to cap off our episode on this 
Yeah, I, just to put into perspective, I think why we have authority to talk about it. Um, so there's been a couple of papers through the years that have uh, polled medical doctors, dermatologists. Um, in between all of them, uh, they report that on average, uh, physicians get three or fewer delusory cases a year, um, self-reported delusory parasitosis cases a year. I get three and a half a month that, I, again, suspected delusory cases, like I don't know that they have delusory parasitosis for sure. They could be in the early stages of it where there is, you know, something in their environment causing it, but they, they come to me, they have all the red flags, they say they have bugs. Like I would put it in this broader spectrum of suspected delusory parasitosis. I see it all the freaking time. Um, I, like I said, three cases last week. Um, and I've had 282 cases since I started here at Penn State for again, three and a half a month. Some months I don't get any. Some one month I had 15. Um, compared again to dermatologists that report like three or fewer in over multiple years. Like I, I think a lot of it is they don't recognize it. Sometimes they, maybe there's more of them. So it's more diffuse and we're getting like the concentrated ones. Like there's a concentration effect. Maybe. Um, I don't, I don't know what it is, but we certainly see it a lot more than is reported by physicians. So I, I don't know how I, to get that across <laughs> the, like I mean, the entomology medical barrier. Right. But, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I've just, I mean, I don't, I only have one dermatologist and a couple doctors, but never when I ask about it, I'm like, oh yeah, you probably see people that, you know, think they have bugs on their skin. They're like, no, never. Or to my family physician. No, they, she laughed. And I was like, so yeah, it's not going to be if you think you have bugs in or on your body or on your things, you're going to go to someone who deals with bugs. You're not going to go to the medical profession. Yeah. So whoever, if, you know, it's a medical issue, they, that's who people are asking for survey results, but they're not, they're always going to be lower than our numbers, but no one's asking us. And I think that's like, you know, that's the <laughs> real, the real cost of like whatever I was talking about, like the disciplinary boundaries between different professions. So you know, unless there's some kind of collaboration or link between healthcare, medical profession and entomologists, like we're, it's going to be really hard, all these challenges with like with, with health of people. I would um, throw psychiatry. Psychologists. Yeah. 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 So in the, there, I mentioned it at the top, Zach DeVries and I are gearing up to teach this hour long seminar course each week on delusory to about 10 students. And one of the people we have had in the past in the class as a guest lecturer is a psychiatrist here at the University of Kentucky, who I believe has authored a paper on delusory. And part of his presentation was saying that this, this three or four number about, yeah, there's like three people per 100,000 in the United States that suffer from delusory parasitosis, or we see three clients a year, this kind of num numbers that were coming out. And I, I shared some of Jody and I's numbers from the past where it was we saw 50 a piece in a year. Like we saw almost one client a week, a different person uh, on average a week with the loser. And it blew this guy's mind. He's like, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how could that be? And 
I I don't know, Mike. I think you were you were trying to come up with some positive mm-hmm. or possible reasons about the the concentration or something, but I I'm afraid that it is what Jody said. It's you got a bug problem. You're going to talk to a bug person. So it I, does position us differently. You're right. That was a good way of putting it, Mike. It, I agree with that, but also the number of clients that I see that say they've seen a physician of any sort at some point before they saw me, like, I can't believe that all these people, like, there's some I just sort of don't, discrepancy. Yeah. Like, I just don't see, like, you have bugs, you go through a bug person because a lot, so 50% have said they've seen a physician before. But what are they telling their physician? Like, this is the thing. When when right. they come to me and I'm like, what are you telling your doctor? And they're like, well, I told them I feel bugs in my body. And they told me to come to you. And I said, you need to tell them like that you're not sleeping, that, you know, you're, this is how you're feeling. Like, I can't diagnose your feeling, but maybe they can help you like with what your symptoms are. So you need to talk about how you're feeling, what's going on, not like those sensations, not, oh, they're, you know, Try to describe it without the word bug because they're just dismissing you. They're not listening to you and your health. That's right? a great point in, in something I hadn't considered before you said that. Something I have done with, with clients before is coach them on how to talk to a physician. Like I'll, I'll explicitly say like, there's no bugs in your samples. Based on what I've seen, I don't think there's any insects biting you. But when you go talk to your physician about these feelings that you're having, you have to say, I have these bite like feelings, or I have these itching feelings, you don't tell the doctor, I have bugs in my skin, or I have Mm -hmm. parasites, Mm -hmm. because they will dismiss you. And so here's how you talk to them to get them to listen to you. Right? Like, Um, what medications am I on? Could these be reacting to like to give me this rash or to give me this dry skin? Is this causing this? How can I combat this feeling? Like, can I treat the symptoms? So I don't feel this way, but these are what I like. It's yeah, it's complicated. There's an extra layer on top of all that too, right? In that the average delusory client is an over the age of 50 postmenopausal woman. And that group of people already suffers with the medical community. Like they're already taken at less face value than other folks. So I think there's a lot of cultural things that come into this unfortunately as well. And healthcare costs money. It's inconvenient, right? It's not, it's, it's, I don't know. I, it's, it's not an easy situation. Yeah. I, it's one thing for me to tell the client, like if the first doctor that you talk to after this, dismisses you goes like doctor shop until you find a doctor that will listen, but like that's expensive and time consuming. And they may not have either of those resources available, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I wish we knew what happens to them. There's not any like real long-term studies, you know, like how the, like the ethics of that and studying what happens to these clients and if they ever do get treated and if they do get treated, what's the path that they go to get there. It would be really nice to know that along that way, if, you know, if there are success stories, how we played that role and how we could best play that role in the future. Yeah. I mean, closing the loop on this whole thing. I think that's the part that's tough is not knowing is not knowing. I mean, there are some things I don't want to know. Mike alluded to the the suicidal <laughs> thoughts and things. I mean, I, I couldn't handle that. I could not handle finding out that, that 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I, I've called the police before. I've called for a well check. I have also called Child Protective Services because yep. um, someone was cutting the skin of her baby or what I suspected. And those are really hard decisions. I feel awful about it, but I would have felt worse if I didn't do anything about it. And this is definitely not what I thought being an entomologist was about. But I am in the job of caring for people. So I think to echo all of that, the not knowing is hard. The fact that I get so many via email, like all I've got is an email contact. And I've had, I have had ones where like a mom comes and says, I have these bugs and my 12 year old has these bugs and here's their skin. Like I can't contact child protective services because I don't know how to, I don't have anything besides an email to contact this person. I don't have an address or a phone number or even a last name. Um, mm-hmm. So like, I can't take steps like that often that would, you know, if not help with their deep, their delusory peristosis, at least help somebody else in the situation. And that sucks too. Yes. Uh, it does take an emotional toll. I think on us, I'm not trying to flip the conversation to be, no, that's us. let's wrap it up. Right. No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> uh, I was just trying to say, I don't want it to be about entomologists, like the people that are suffering. They're the ones that we're trying to help, but it does take a toll after a while on the people that are in our community and our field. And I think it, it behooves us to talk about it more openly and kind of blow those gates open and, and help each other to try and address this and to come up with solutions for people. So that was kind of our goal for today. Um, we hope that everybody learned a little bit of something along the way. Uh, we appreciate that you've listened to our experiences and and maybe heard some of our advice and you can use it in your own career in the future. If you want to find Arthropod on the web, we are arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We're on all of your favorite podcatcher apps uh, at the same, arthro-pod. If you want to find us on those, if you do find us there and you enjoy the show, leave us a rating and review. We've been getting some cool comments on Spotify that I've really enjoyed reading. And uh, some of them have made me chuckle quite a bit. So I appreciate those to those of you who are Spotify users. We are all also online. I'm just Jonathan Larson entomology. Like look that up and you'll find all the various things. I don't know if I really want to plug Twitter anymore, but I am there at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me UNL. Oh man, I deleted Twitter off my phone like two weeks ago. So I'll I'll plug it. I don't know if I'll see it anytime soon, but I'm at mstavarla 36 And we appreciate all of you tuning in and listening. Uh, it was a little bit maybe of a harder episode, but we will catch you next week or in a couple of weeks on our next episode where we're going to talk about entomology extension and artificial intelligence. So look forward to that. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.